Section 14 of Astounding Stories 06, June 1930. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Astounding Stories 06, June 1930. Giants of the Ray by Tom Curry, Part 2. The Gurlones hardly noticed the newcomer as they ran madly towards the shelter of their houses. Espinosa joined them, going swiftly in spite of his blind eyes. The croaking made Maggot's brain scream with the immensity of the sound. Luminous white discs, three feet in diameter, glared at him, and the creature which progressed with jerky leaps toward him almost filled the mouth of the mine. It was hot in pursuit of the fleeing Gurlones. It squatted and then jumped, and presently it was out in the night air. Its form was that of a gigantic frog, but it stood some twenty feet in height, and from its throat sounded the terrific bellowing which rivaled the thunder. Maggot bravely stepped forward and began to fire into the huge, soft body. The great mouth opened, and as the dum-dum bullets tore gashes in the blackish-green batrachian, the thunderous croaks took on a note of pain. The odor of the creature was horrible. Maggot could scarcely draw his breath as he fired the contents of the magazine into the big animal. Two more jumps brought the frog almost to Maggot's feet, and the tropical tramp felt a whisker-like tentacle touch his face, and bad-smelling slime covered him. The frog was blind, without doubt, from its underground life, but the tentacle seemed to be the way it finally located its prey, for it turned on Maggot and made a final snap at him. The great jaws closed like the flap of hell, and Maggot leaped back with a cry of triumphant terror. The bullets had finally stopped the big frog, but at its heels came a strange, jelly-like creature, not quite as bulky as the frog, but pushing along on its legs, and with a tail some eight feet thick and fifteen feet in length. This, too, evidently a polywog was blind, with whitened discs for eyes, but it slid along at a rapid rate because of its size. Maggot's gun was empty. He turned to flee, but the polywog stopped and sniffed at the thick blood of its fellow. Then, to Maggot's relief, it began to hungrily devour its companion. Utterly filthy and ferocious, the polywog, in silence, snapped great chunks from the dead giant frog. "'Hello. Who are you?' Maggot turned, having forgotten the amenities of life in the excitement. Professor Gurlone and his son, still clad in their black suits, but with their helmets off, were standing beside him, clutching their guns and lights. The big Portuguese, Espinosa, appeared, and Durkin was beside him. "'Why,' said Maggot, between gasps, "'we just happened to be out exploring, and we saw your camp. We were on our way in when we heard the noises, and came to investigate.' "'I see,' said old Gurlone. "'What made you head in this direction, and where's your outfit?' "'Oh, we cached most of it back there,' said Maggot. My partner's hurt his foot, so he can't walk well. Isn't that so, Durkin? Yeah, growled Durkin. I got a sore foot all right. Old Gurlone was suspicious of the vague story which Maggot and Durkin concocted as the explanation of their presence in the valley. But evidently the professor was too worried about the situation in which he and his friends were to question the two tramps very closely. In fact, he seemed rather glad that he had two more pairs of hands to aid him, and he thanked Maggot for his bravery. 
They dispatched the great polywog as it tore its parent to bits, and then the five men, the two girlones, Espinosa, Maggot, and the limping, cursing Durkin, retired to one of the shacks. The living quarters of the girlones was quite elaborate. There were many books on rough shelves, and there was a small bench filled with glass files and chemicals, though the main laboratory was in one of the long buildings. Professor Gurlone poured drinks for the five, and welcomed Durkin and Maggot as allies. "'We'll need every man we can get, if we're to cope with these great creatures,' said old Gurlone. "'The peons are too frightened to be of use. Luckily it was a frog we came upon on the banks of the subterranean river. There's no telling how many more creatures of the same or greater size may be down there. We will have to destroy them, every one.' Maggot and Durkin shuddered. Say, blurted Durkin, his face working nervously, how the hell did that frog get so big? I thought I was seeing things, Professor. No, no, said Professor Gurlone. You see, the ore in the mine contains radium. That is, salts of radium. It is a pitchblende deposit, and it happens to be so rich in radium content that throughout the ages it has affected all the life in the cavern. The arid land surrounding the ore this has been generally one of the characteristics of radium deposits, has kept most of the jungle creatures away. But underground beings, such as reptiles, worms, and frogs, have gradually become immune to the effects of the ore, and have grown prodigiously and abnormally under the stimulation of the rays given off by the radium. Now this is nothing strange in itself, but never before has such a rich deposit been discovered, so that the amounts of radium available have been too small to really check its effect on growth in animals. That is our chief scientific object in coming here. We realize from Signor Espinosa's description of the played-out silver mine he had, and from his loss of sight, that he had stumbled upon a valuable deposit of radium. It usually occurs with silver that is, the uranium mother ore does, through the disintegration of which radium is formed. The content of radium per ton in this ore proved unbelievably rich. We were delighted. I have always suspected that the animal cell might be stimulated into abnormal growth by exposure to radium salts, for such a thing already has been hinted at in the scientific world. Not till our chance came here, however, has enough radium been available for the experiments. Maggot and Durkin listened with open mouths. Radium meant but vague things to them. They had heard of radium paint which shone in the dark on the dials of watches and clothes, but of the properties of the metal and its salts they were utterly ignorant. "'That radium stuff is what makes the funny light in that mine, then?' asked Maggot. "'Exactly. The radioactivity of the elements in the ore give off the light. There are three rays, the alpha, beta, and gamma, and... The professor forgot himself in a lecture on the properties of radium. Durkin, breaking in, asked slyly, Is this radium worth as much as silver? Young Kenneth Gurlone laughed, and even old Professor Gurlone smiled. Radium is worth more than gold or diamonds or platinum. Its value is fabulous. We have five million dollars worth already in the form of the chloride. Whistled Durkin. He glanced sidewise at Maggot. Yes, said Professor Gurlone. Five million dollars worth of it. Those great monsters who have been developed throughout the ages by the action of the radium rays on their bodies, causing them to grow so prodigiously, are but incidents. We must destroy them so that our work cannot be interfered with. 
We must use dynamite, blow them to bits. They are powerful enough to crush the stone bank by the mine mouth and ruin the labor of the past two years, gentlemen. Armed and once more fortified with whiskey, the five made their way outside. The moon was darkened by an immense shadow, as one of the giant bats winged its way over their heads. But there were no more monster frogs. The ugly, bulky shapes of the dead pollywog and its parent lay before them. We are safe for the moment, said Professor Gurlone. Go and quiet the peons, Espinosa. They will listen to you. The peons still wailed in terror. The blind Espinosa slipped silently away. Come, said Professor Gurlone to his son and to Maggot and Durkin. I will show you the laboratory so that you can understand better the effects of radium on growth. The professor led them to the long, low, many-windowed building nearby and flooded it with light. It contained cage after cage in which were monkeys, pumas, and various jungle folk. These creatures set up a chattering and howling at the light and the intruders. Maggot glanced curiously about him. He saw shining vials and glassware of queer shapes on long black tables and tubes of chemicals. There were immense screens of dull lead. Those are for protection, said Professor Gurlone, as are the lead cloth suits we wear. Otherwise we would be burned by radium rays. Maggot looked about to see if his partner was listening, but he had gone away. However, Maggot was intensely interested. He went from cage to cage as Professor Gurlone, rather in the manner of a man giving a lecture to students, pointed out animal after animal that had been treated by the radium. This, said the professor, is a monkey which usually attains a height of two feet. You can see for yourself that it is now larger than a gorilla. The horrible, malformed creature bared its teeth and shook its bars in rage, but it was weak, evidently, from the treatment accorded it. Its hair was burned off in spots, and its eyes were almost white. There was a jaguar, and this beast seemed to have burst its skin in its effort to grow as large as three of its kind. "'You see, we have not so much time as nature,' said Professor Gurlone. "'These beasts cannot be enlarged too rapidly, or they would die. They must be protected from the direct rays of the radium, which is refined.' In the ore, the action is more gradual and gentle, since it is less concentrated. But the metal itself would burn the vital organs out of these creatures, cause them to be struck blind, shrivel them up inside, and kill them in a few minutes in the quantity we have. We expose them, bit by bit, allowing more and more time as they begin to grow immune to the rays. Here, you see, are smaller creatures which have grown some eight or ten times beyond normal size. All the animals seemed the worse for wear. Maggot, his brain reeling, yet was beginning to grasp what radium did to one. It was not gold that you could pick up and carry away. If a man touched that radium, he asked, what would happen to him? Just what I said would happen to the animals if we did not give it to them gradually, said Gurlone, with a wave of his hand. It would kill him, strike him down as though by invisible poison gas. His heart and lungs would cease to function, pernicious anemia would set in as the red corpuscles in his blood perished by the millions. He would be struck blind, fall down, and die in agony. To Maggot came the picture of the unfortunate one. As though answering his unasked question, Professor Gurlone went on. We had a peon coming up with us, he said. His name was Juan. 
He stole my sample case which contained an ounce of radium chloride and ran off with it if he opens it It will kill him in just that way Maggot shivered, but but didn't it hurt you to carry it he asked No, for it was encased in a lead container some two inches in thickness and the rays cannot penetrate such a depth of lead They are trapped in the metal Father father you're wasting time broke in Kenneth Gurlone shaking his yellow head we must act at once the peons are almost mad with fear even Espinosa cannot quiet them and every moment is precious for the monsters may break forth But maggot was looking nervously about for Durkin where was he? Durkin had his mind on the treasure and as they turned toward the door the professor saying the rays from the ore which is not so concentrated as the purified metal do not kill Durkin suddenly appeared he carried his rifle at his hip and he limped and cursed angrily come across shouted Durkin give me the key to that stone house snap into it and no argument the key to the stone bank repeated old Gurlone yes I'll give you five counts to throw it over and then I'll shoot you and take it snarled Durkin savagely I want that treasure whatever it is and I'll have it one two three the tramps sent a shot over their heads as a warning hey bill easy easy pleaded maggot that stuff is radium it'll ruin you boy shut up you yellow-bellied bum snarled durkin four a tinkle of metal came on the stone floor of the laboratory as old gurlone tossed his keys to durkin don't go in that shack cried young gurlone it'll be your death man liars yelled durkin and backed out the door hmm said old gurlone turning to maggot so you came to rob us, eh? But maggot thought of one and then he knew he did not want Durkin in spite of his failings to perish So he ran for the door and across the clearing Durkin bill wait. It's Frank Great bellowing sounded from the bowels of the earth, but maggot ignored these in his effort to save his partner Durkin had the padlock off the stone shack and pulled back the door as the door disclosed the interior maggot could see that a greenish haze filled the entire building one liquid light streamed forth like heavy fluid bravely to save his pal from death maggot ran forward but durkin had entered the stone shack maggot went to the very door of the building durkin was inside and maggot could see his partner's thick form as a black object in the strange thick air an eerie scream came suddenly from durkin's lips Maggot wrung his hands and called for help come out bill come out he cried Durkin evidently tried to obey for he turned toward the door But his knees seemed to give way beneath him He threw his arm across his eyes as he sank to the ground crying in agony incoherent sounds issuing from his lips Shriek after shriek the unfortunate man uttered as Maggot made a dash forward to take a chance with death and rescue his friend Professor Gurlone and his son Kenneth ran up and threw a black cloak over the tramp the three entered the shack of death Maggot not entirely covered felt his heart give a terrific jump and he gasped for breath Durkin was quivering on the floor which was lined with lead Round vials stood about the room like a battery of searchlights and from these emanated the deadly green haze but almost before Maggot touched his pal Durkin was dead curled up as though sewed together by heavy cords Durkin lay in a ball a shaking mass of burned flesh 
The two Gurlones pushed out ahead of them and raised their hands. They had on their black suits and their helmets. It's too late to do anything for him now, said Kenneth Gurlone sadly. He was headstrong. You can see for yourself that the five million dollars takes care of itself. Certain death goes with it if you're unprotected. These lead cloth suits will keep off the rays for a short time. We always wear them when we're working with the metal, even when we have a lead screen. Poor Bill, sobbed Maggot. It's terrible. Professor Gurlone shrugged. It was his own fault. He was a thief, and he would not let us stop him. I hope it's been a lesson to you, Maggot. Yes. I want to help you, said Maggot. If you'll keep me with you, I'll work for you and be straight. Just give me a chance. Good. Then shake hands on it, said Kenneth. And they clasped hands firmly. Espinosa appeared from the darkness. The peons are mad with terror he said morosely. They cannot be held much longer. They will revolt. Well, we must kill the creatures in the cavern. That will quiet them more than anything else, said Professor Gurlone. Better close the stone shack, said Kenneth. But as he spoke, a vast shape, another giant frog, appeared in the entrance of the shaft. Get some dynamite and fuses, ordered Professor Gurlone quietly. Come on, Kenneth, and you, Maggot, if you care to risk your life. You need not do so unless you wish to. Bravely, the older man led the way toward the croaking monster. The ground shook at its approach. It was heading for the bodies of the dead frog and pollywog, bent on a search for food. Evidently, these vast creatures were forced to prey upon one another for sustenance. The rifles spoke, and Maggot and the professor in their black suits, protected by the lead cloth and helmet from the rays, advanced. They poured bullet after bullet into the frog. Kenneth came running to join them, and Espinosa stood by. Kenneth had dynamite bombs with fuses ready for lighting and throwing. He also brought more ammunition, and the three armed themselves to the teeth. It was well after midnight when they started into the mine. They knew they must act quickly or retreat, for the bellowing sounded nearer and nearer the surface of the earth. Each man carried big, powerful flashlights, and the three entered the mine shaft and walked across the seething slugs into the bowels of the earth. Stay close together, ordered old Gurlone. The mine was easy to descend for the first hundred yards. It led in a gentle slope downward. The way, save for a few giant bats and moths and the big maggots, was clear. The greenish haze, not so bright as that in the death shack, enveloped them but they needed their flashes to see clearly. Slowly, take it easy, counseled old Gurlone. The mine spread out now and began a steeper descent. The air was poor, and it was hard to breathe through the mask. Maggot, his heart thumping mightily, listened to the roaring within the depths of the mine. And now the ground seemed to drop away before them. Maggot could hear the running of water, the underground river, and every now and then there came an immense splash, as if some great whale had thrown itself about in the water. A terrifically loud hissing filled their ears, and suddenly before them showed an utterly white snake, with a head as big as a barrel, its white eyes glared sightlessly, but its tongue stuck forth for several feet. Kenneth Gurlone coolly tossed a lighted bomb at the creature. The explosion shattered their eardrums, but it also smashed the serpent. The writhing, wriggling coils, bigger than the body of a horse, slashed about dangerously near. 
They picked themselves up and pushed on, keeping close to the right wall. A great bat smashed against Maggot and knocked the light out of his hand, but the blow was a glancing one, and he was able to retrieve his light and hurry on. They were far from the entrance now. The hole which had been broken through by the peons showed before them, and they could see milky water dashing over black rocks. Pallid eyes looked at them, and they knew they gazed upon another of the giant frogs. They tossed a bomb at the creature and blew a jagged hole in his back. No sooner had he begun to die than there came a sudden rush of other monsters, and a feast began. Throw all together, yelled Kenneth Gurlone, into the vast mass of creatures who crowded one another in the river for their share of the spoils. They threw bomb after bomb. The dynamite deafened them, and acrid fumes choked them. But they fired their rifles at the prodigious animals, and there in the big river cavern was a seething mass of horrible life, dying in agony. The bellowings and hissings sounded louder, so loud that the earth shook as if actuated by a mighty earthquake. Maggot gripped Kenneth Gurlone's arm. My bombs are gone, he shouted. He had but a few rounds of ammunition left, and still more of the giant reptiles appeared. A centipede, with its creeping horrible legs, topped the mass of squirming matter. They could see the terrific sting of the creature, so deadly when but a fraction of an inch long, and which was now at least a foot, armed with poison. There came the rush of more bats and moths, a rush that threw the three men off their feet. We must have opened the hole more with our bombs, shrieked old Gurlone. The dead bodies attract the other creatures, more and more of them are coming. It is impossible. We cannot deal with them all. The vast gobbling of the great animals in the river below them was so prodigious they could not grasp it. It seemed it must be an optical illusion. In a few moments the dead had been eaten, swallowed whole, and fights were progressing between the victors. They tossed the rest of their bombs, fired the remaining ammunition, and as they prepared to retreat, several of the big creatures slopped over and started over the river bank into the mine shaft. They ran for their lives, the three, madly with the earth shaking behind them as they were pursued by a hopping monster of a beetle with immense mandibles reaching out at them. They dashed for the open air. Giant moths and bats struck at them, and Maggot fell down several times before he reached the outside, and he was bruised and out of breath. Come on, there are too many to fight, gasped old Gurlone, throwing off the lead suit. But there was no need to talk. The creatures, disturbed by the bombs, had collected in one spot, and shown the way out by one of their number, were coming. Espinosa, with Kenneth Gurlone holding his hand, ran swiftly for the hills surrounding the valley. Maggot helped old Professor Gurlone, who was so out of breath that he could scarcely move. The great beetle which had been pursuing them was the first to break forth into the valley. Turning back for a look over his shoulder, Maggot saw the thing pause, but the cavern belched forth a vast array of monsters, the beasts roaring, hissing, bellowing, in an increasing mass of sound. They swarmed over the ground, and giant bats and moths winged their way above the heads of the monsters. At the rim of the valley the four men paused. God help the peons, said Kenneth Gurlone. Now the horde of monsters swelled more and more. The bats and moths winged in mad frenzy about the open door of the radium shack. There were great beetles, 
centipedes, ants, crickets, hopping, crawling things, and grotesquely immense in size. Fights progressed here and there, but the majority of them were carried along in the sweep of the multitude. See, the radium kills those who get too close, said Professor Gurlone in a hushed voice. The giant moths and bats were unable to withstand the lure of the green light. They flew with mad beatings of wings straight for the open door of the death house, and many of the great creatures, attracted by the light and urged on by an unexplainable force which sent them to death like gnats and moths in a flame, crowded near to the death-dealing radium. Not until the whole shack was covered with quivering forms of the dead did the other creatures veer off and with hops, creepings, and myriad giant legs begin to cover the whole valley. The stone walls of the death shack had crumpled in with the weight. The other buildings, more lightly built, gave at once with crackings and crashings. The four men were powerless to assist the unfortunate peons who were trapped in their barracks. The charged wires stopped many of the big beasts, but soon the electric light was short-circuited, and the valley, in the moonlight, was a seething mass of fighting, dying, feasting monsters. Other sounds besides those made by the big creatures came to the ears of the stricken men on the hillside. The breaking of glass, the cries of the jungle animals trapped in their cages, the shrieks of dying peons who were eaten at a gulp by the big frogs, or stung to death, impaled on the mandibles of the great stinging centipede. In the spot where the radium death shack had been was a pulpy mass of livid smoky light. Now the bowl of the valley was filled as by some vast jelly. The creatures were slopping over the walls and battling together. The shambles was not yet over, but the four could remain no longer. They made their way down the hillside and struck out across the arid lands. Maggot the Tramp became the leader. He was a trained jungle man and it was he who finally brought them to safety to the Madeira. He was their strong man, the one who found the trail and located roots and fruit for the party to subsist on. They nearly perished in the trip for lack of water, but again Maggot was able to supply them with roots which kept them from dying in agony. They lay upon the river bank now, exhausted but alive. Maggot had assisted old Gurlone, acted as his staff, half carried him the last miles of the trip. Their clothes were almost gone. They were burned to crisps by the tropic sun. Flies and other insects had taken their toll, but Maggot had brought them through. The tall, thin fellow's hair had turned utterly white, but so had his soul. "'You're a good man, Maggot,' said Professor Gurlone. "'You have saved us, and you have been brave as a lion.' Maggot shook his head. "'Professor,' he said, I came into the jungle to rob you. Durkin and I bribed Juan to steal that radium, and I feel responsible for his death. We thought you had diamonds or gold in the Matto Grosso, and we were after it, and that's why I'm here. You have repaid your debt to us more than fully, said Kenneth, holding out his hand. Yes, said Espinosa. Will you keep me with you, then, said Maggot anxiously. Or will you go back there? Professor Gurlone stared at him and then said in a surprised tone, Why, of course. But the monsters, asked Maggot. Many of them will die in the outer air, said Gurlone. The survivors of the battles will start eating the dead. They will finally clear away the debris of dead creatures about the radium shack, as each is exposed to the rays of the concentrated metal. It will die. The others will eat it, 
and be killed in turn Thus they will be destroyed if there are any survivors after this evident turn of events Then we will cope with them when we return reinforced Dynamite enough of it will finish them off and maggot in your next pursuit after knowledge of strange things You may get a few earthly riches the radium is still there and you will share in it Thank you said maggot humbly. I'm with you to the end You must keep quiet about this cautioned Kenneth Gurlone. We do not want the world to know too much of our vast store of radium It would attract adventurers and we would be annoyed by ignorant men But we're thankful you lay drunk in that saloon when my father spoke of the millions maggot in Manzo's maggot found himself a changed man to his surprise, in spite of his white hair brought on by the horror of what he had seen, he found that he had gained two inches in height, and that he was larger of girth. This, Professor Gurlone told him, was the effect of the radium rays. Never again did Maggot lie drunk on the floor of a saloon. The events through which he had gone had seared the tramp's soul, and he kept close to his new master, Professor Gurlone. End of Giants of the Ray by Tom Curry